Welcome to the Band Voices podcast. This is Joseph Dunnigan. Band Voices is the podcast from the Band Books Museum, a museum in Tallinn, Estonia, which protects and exhibits banned, burned and censored books from around the world. In this episode, I speak with Wangpo Tethong, the executive director of the European branch of the International Campaign for Tibet. The Tibetan cause their campaign for independence and long-suffering at the hands of the Communist Party of China have been relatively well-publicised for decades in the West. Most people, I think, know some basic facts about the Tibetans, or the Dalai Lama, or the persecutions that are happening. So I'm very glad to have had this conversation with Wang Po to lay out the contemporary situation for the Tibetans, get some idea of the challenges they are facing right now, and very interestingly, the strategies that they have for moving forward into the future. So I hope that, like me, you are enlightened and maybe slightly cautiously optimistic after hearing this interview with Wangpo Tethong. So, Wangpo, it's very nice to meet you. Thank you for uh, joining us on Band Voices podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. I think perhaps we can start with talking about uh, Tibet and the Tibetans, because of course, I think many people already know Tibet, they've heard about the Tibetans, they don't, maybe they don't know the details, but they know that Tibet is, uh, the Tibetan people are a kind of oppressed or persecuted group within China. That's how most people know them, I think. So maybe you can give us some information, some basic facts about um, how many people we're talking about, where in the world we're talking about. And um, I would like to hear also about uh, about your group and uh, what it is that you're campaigning for. Yes, uh, first of all, thank you very much again for having me and also uh, the, uh, for the opportunity to talk about Tibet. And uh, I have to say, when I speak with people about Tibet, explain them where Tibet lies, the heart of Asia and how big it is, then many are surprised to, uh, to, to realize how huge this land is. And uh, it's uh, more than, uh, you see, the, the, the size of Tibet is huge. It's maybe 50 times bigger than Switzerland. And uh, it's uh, the mountain range, the famous one is Himalaya. And it's about 2000 kilometers long, the Himalayas. And if you start in the West, with Pakistan and go, you see, through Northern India and walk and walk along the Himalayas. Then you'll sometime you'll be in Nepal, then Bhutan, Sikkim, then you'll be in Bangladesh and in Bur Burma, finally. And all the area above in the north is Tibet. It's the Tibetan plateau. And there, there is this huge civilization, uh, which is now under threat. And as many people also know is, uh, Tibet was an independent country and uh, was occupied by China in 1950. And then 51, there was a, a so-called treaty, the, a treaty of the so-called uh, peaceful liberation. And since then, Tibet uh, is now under the formal rule of uh, the People's Republic of China. However, the Tibetans say, and uh, we also, uh, the, the organization I work for, 
uh, it is uh, the international campaign for Tibet. We maintain that this occupation is illegal. For therefore, we say under international law, it's it's this whole situation must be actually described as an occupation of a once independent country. And this is where the um, this is where the Tibetan Parliament in exile comes in, right? Because you recognize you would recognize the Tibetan Parliament in exile as a continuation of the legal Tibetan state, right? Exactly. Yes, uh, as you rightly pointed out, there is an exile community, exile parliament, and this exile structure is, of course, not in Tibet but outside Tibet. It's in India, in North India, a place called Dharamsala, and there we have a a whole functioning administration of uh, with the executive branch, with the parliament, uh, with elections, and so on. But then again, you see, it's an exile community, and it's not possible to have uh, elections inside Tibet. So this group of people who are in North India, they see themselves as the legitimate uh, representatives of the Tibetans inside Tibet, but were, of course, not elected by the people inside Tibet, yeah, but only by those who live outside and who are able to, to participate in these elections. How many people do you think this is? How many, how many, for example, Tibetans are there inside of China and then maybe uh, outside in the, in the diaspora? Yeah, so on the Tibetan plateau, there might be around six to seven million Tibetans. It's very difficult to say something about the, the figures because the statistics that uh, uh, the Chinese government provide are not complete. And it's very sort of doubtful what they actually are able to tell us. Uh, we also know that a lot of Chinese settlers are in Tibet. There's a huge number of uh, military uh, personnel in in Tibet, and then uh, we estimate that around six million, maybe Chinese, live on this Tibetan uh, plateau. And these six million immigrated to this plateau only after 1950. Yeah, so quite recently. In fact. It's strange actually that there is a. I live here in Estonia, which was um, occupied by the uh, Soviet Union in 19, yeah. 1940 and there's a strange kind of parallel uh, there yes. where the Soviet Union came in and the if you ask uh, Estonians they would say that um, Estonia was never a, social, a Soviet Republic it was occupied by the yeah. Soviet Union and it continued so we just celebrated a few years ago Estonia's 100th birthday because yeah. even the year, even the years of occupation are considered to be, you know, this is the yes. government still existed. It was just occupied. Yes. So there's a similar kind of thing, and that, and also there was a program during mm. the Soviet Union time of bringing uh, Russian people into the Estonian territory mm. to kind of stabilize the uh, stabilize the government and everything. So it's a similar similar tactic which has been used kind of throughout history. And I see this being applied now, in certainly in Tibet, but also in the in, in other uh, Chinese territories. What do you think it is that is um, holding the Tibetan identity together? What is it that these people are sharing, M- more than just you know genetically? Maybe they're connected, but what is yeah. it that people in the diaspora are pointing to and saying, "Ah, mm-hmm. this is what makes us Tibetan." 
I think it's very similar to the situation in uh, many of these uh, former Soviet uh, uh, areas in Eastern Europe. Tibetans have a clear uh, memory of their nationhood. It's only one, two generations ago where Tibet was not only a civilization, which it also is a very fascinating uh, civilization with their own language, with their own culture, with, uh, with their own script and, and the way of living and everything. But it was also a nation, and there's a clear memory of this nation, how it functioned. Of course, it can't be compared with the modern state. Uh, it was archaic to some extent. It was not democratic. But there's a memory of being together in this, on this plateau and, uh, and uh, uh, sharing the same beliefs, the same narratives, uh, the same myths about the past. And sometimes I feel the Tibetans also have something in common with the Greek people, the ancient Greek. You see, there's the same sense of being Greek for many of these Greek settlements around the Mediterranean Sea because they share the same story, they share the same political also ideas. And I think this is what the Tibetan uh, makes uh, feel that they are uh, one sort of society, one. Uh, uh, community who share a common destiny and you say it's um it's only a few generations it really is only a few generations there are people alive yeah. who remember who remember that time including the dalai lama himself you know exactly, who, who, yeah. he's still alive and he remember, yeah. remembers when it was when tibet was a separate country but this um this topic is interesting you mentioned the kind of um you can't compare tibet in the past you know to a modern kind of country and this is what the Chinese use. They use this as a in the um, their narrative about building. You know, T Tibet was a poor country, and yeah. the Chinese came and they modernized it, and the, mm -hmm. they destroyed all the language and all the religion and all the culture and everything. And that was part. So this narrative is is the kind of popular narrative mm -hmm. in China, justifying mm -hmm. uh, what they did when they. Mm -hmm. Well, they say liberated the country. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, so, what, what? How do you respond to this narrative? Because I would, I would think it's not necessary to completely destroy the country in order to build and to improve the territory and provide rights for the people. Not that people, the people there have have rights anymore. But how do you respond to that narrative? This narrative, or people who repeat this narrative, are, I feel, somehow totally disconnected from. What I feel is my past and is my heritage. For example, uh, in my family, uh, there were some people who had interests in modernizing Tibet. And I met quite recently a person who was one of the founders of the Communist Party of Tibet. And he told me, young man, he said to me, <laughs> though I'm quite old now, or 60, he said, you should remember that in your parents' house, grandfather's house, the Communist Party of Tibet was founded. So th it, this was before the Chinese came, and there was a group of people who were thinking, you see, in progressive terms, but who had a different sort of vision of how this Tibetan nation should be. It could be socialist, it could be sort of different, but it should the, the, the Tibetans should uh, determine the future and not some foreign power or group of people or interested parties and so on. And therefore, I think it's very 
important to understand that it's not just a, a struggle between modernism and and the past or something like this, but there were inside Tibet, there were already people who really seriously were talking about reforming this, this society. Was it a big movement? No, it was not. But there were people who were thinking in these terms and all these people who, who tried to do something for their own future, they suffered badly among under the Chinese afterwards. Yeah, under the Chinese comes through, they were regarded as as uh, leftists at some point, and then again as rightists, and they suffered maybe the most uh, because they were sort of the uh, constant reminder that it's not this question about you see being uh, changing Tibet to a modern state or not, but they reminded the Chinese Communist Party that. It's actually something between them and us. Yeah. If you don't mind, can you tell me more about your uh, your personal background and your and your connection? What, what is it? Your, you mentioned your your grandparents and your 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 parents. What were the, what were their roles and how did you end up in uh, in where are you in Switzerland now? No, I am in Amsterdam. I'm in Amsterdam. I started yeah, in Amsterdam. Yeah, but my family lives in, in Switzerland, and I'm uh, sort of a, a community between Zurich and and, and Amsterdam. Yeah because I work here for the organization and, and uh, for the international campaign for Tibet. So as I already told, I'm now 60 and I was born 60 years ago in Switzerland. My father was the first Tibetan to settle in Europe. So it's a long time ago. And uh, he was, again, he came from a, a, a family uh, who was, uh, that was very sort of interested in culture, and literature, and he also had the chance to study in India. So there were not many Tibetans who, who studied in India and got some form of modern education. He belonged to the very, very few people. And so he was sent to Switzerland to, to look after a group of Tibetan refugee children. So he came there, uh, he was an educator, and uh, he was someone who was very much interested in Tibetan literature and history and so on. And what he passed to us was not so much a feeling of resentment, but more sort of a, a feeling of, uh, of a big romance to this wonderful past. You see, this was his way of telling us how important our heritage is and as as small children, my 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 sister, my siblings, my sisters and brothers, we listened to him and to his many 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 stories that he told about. But so that's how we grew up, and I think it's not very special how we grew up as refugees. I think all refugees have this longing to the past, to the the, the country that they left behind. Yeah. So what we le learned from him was uh, how uh, our grandparents, who we never saw, you see, were, were living in Tibet. Um, my grandfather was a, a official. Yeah, uh, my uncle was a minor Tibetan official. He, he worked on a, in, on district level, but uh, so that's that's the background. Yeah, my mother is from a farmer's uh, family. Uh, and uh, she has, of course, a very, very different perspective of her life. Uh, very simple life, a very poor uh, life compared to my father's family. But also, again, very proud of what she sort of uh, feels, what her culture is, 
what her background is and how also in her family, you see that there were again sort of many, many stories that we love to listen to. Yeah, So we, we were brought up with these many stories about Tibetan, Tibet and its past. And uh, we, at the same time, were struggling in a very sort of new environment, you see, to, to understand what we shall do, how to survive, how to say, proceed in the future and so on. Yeah. That's sort of my life. Your family kind of moved, came came to Switzerland and were kind of um, participated in the education system in, in Switzerland and taking care yes. of the refugees yes. and so on. Yeah, Tibetan refugee children, yeah, Tibetan refugee children, yeah. And why why were they, why were refugees being accepted into, into Switzerland? What is, why is it, why is there this tradition of um, this connection, uh, yeah. you know, because I see this a lot, that there's this kind of Western fascination with uh, with Tibet and yeah. with um, assisting Tibets when there doesn't you know there isn't a kind of direct connection and there are many other persecuted groups across Asia who could you know who who kind of need help but there Tibet has this kind of like special connection going even going back even going back you know sixty or more years so what why why is why does that connection exist I think there there was always a huge fascination for for Tibetan culture and this mystery that Tibet also represented to the world. And in Switzerland, there were some people who had some contacts with this, uh, uh, with the, let's say with the borderland of Tibet. There was one person who was in the 50s, he was in Nepal when the first Tibetan refugees arrived from Tibet to Nepal. And this person was a very sort of forceful person, a very charismatic person. And he called back his friends in Switzerland and said, and wrote them and said, look, there are Tibetan refugees now coming over the Himalayas. We need to do something. And it first started with the initiative of this man, Tony Hagen, who later was also uh, uh, working for the International Red Cross. Yeah, uh, he's, He said it would be actually a good idea to bring some Tibetans to Switzerland. So it started with a very small number of Tibetans. First, there were 20 Tibetan children. At some point, uh, it was decided also to send some Tibetan children for, for, for adoption and for, for to foster parents. It's an uh, interesting coincidence that you mention him because uh, today, uh, literally today, I got uh, the book by Tony Hagen. <laughs> It's a very funny coincidence. Yeah. It is a very funny coincidence because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm now making this uh, in my band books museum. Uh, yeah. I, I'm now making this section for uh, band books in India. Yeah. And actually his work was banned in uh, regions of India. So his book qualifies for our museum. And by coincidence today, he came in my in my post box. Uh, yeah, I also have this book in my library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't I haven't had the time yet even to look at it. And yeah. I also don't speak French, so it's not very not, not so useful for me, but I'm very glad to have it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. You will enjoy it. Even looking at the pictures, yeah. Mm. Well, I think yeah, I like to collect these books, but and for me, it's uh, I prefer to collect them even uh, even if I in the original language, even if I don't speak the language, mm-hmm. because it's a kind of artifact. You know, a book for me is like an artifact from history. Yeah, and then it's like so. It's actually better to have it in the original language, and then you you can look at it, you can hold it, and you can actually feel 
yeah the connection with the with the author uh sorry but i interrupted you you were talking um about the yeah the swiss connection and tony Hagen. yeah so i think uh yeah there's this connection between tibetans and the uh, and the swiss but it's only not not only the swiss but in middle of europe there was this connection with tibet because the the europeans were interested in tibet and Tibet culture a long time before. There are some German scientists and philosophers who already wrote about uh, the Tibetan culture, like Schopenhauer and uh, others. So there was sort of an imagination, not a clear knowledge what Tibet uh, is, but there was a fascination, fascination for this country. And I think this also helped a lot, you see, to bring the Tibetans to Europe and also to welcome them in a manner which was quite unique, yeah. I think there was no other group from Asia who received such a welcome as the Tibetans uh, have received. And there is something kind of, um, there is something magnetic about Tibetan culture. You know, you kind of, you see, you know it when you see it. I used yeah. to, I used to live in China. And when yeah. I lived, when I lived in China, there was a short time I was working in a, in a, in a Buddhist kind of shop. It was a weird, strange little job that I had, and I had to sell like Buddhist art to Westerners, which uh, never happened. There never no Westerners ever came, but <laughs> but for a couple, for a month I had this job, and um, I was just so attracted to this Buddhist art. Even when you don't understand it, the Tibetan Buddhist art specifically, when you see these Thangka paintings and so on, you have this kind of emotional connection. Can you tell me about the connection between Tibetan culture and Tibetan Buddhism, like are these almost the same thing, or is it possible to kind of separate them? In your opinion, I think it's possible to separate them because there there are sort of two aspects. The one aspect is definitely the Buddhism, which is a very very sort of our intellectual kind of core. Uh, but then again, there's a way of living in Tibet, and uh, which is a nomadic society. It's about person who face this very rigid climate. Uh, with their family, and, but also with the attitude towards nature and life. And I think there's this combination of sort of an archaic uh, strength uh, to face nature, uh, to live on this, uh, on, on this, on this uh, roof of the world, literally, you see, and, and, uh, and then again to, add, to, to embrace this uh, very complicated uh, uh, culture, religion, philosophy of uh, Buddhism. And the Tibetans uh, embraced this new thought, this new wisdom with the same sense of uh, heroism, one would could say, uh, as they, you see, uh, 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 fight the difficult life on this plateau. And I think if you imagine, for example, uh, how a hermit uh, has to live and survive, you see, it's not easy, it's difficult, you see. If you see how this nomad people, you see, show tremendous also knowledge about their culture and, and their belief systems, you see, and depart on this, to this long, on this long, long pilgrimages where they just prostrate with their, with their bodies and length, they just, you see, uh, cover huge distances, I think, this is not something that is easily done by people, you see. You need some sort of a basic strength. And I feel Tibetans have this, and this is what makes them a little bit 
sort of fascinating to the outside world. Yeah. At the same time, of, of course, Tibetans are also human, also have their weaknesses, also have their faults and everything. This is not disputed. But there's this element, I think, which which uh, Tibetans represent. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that the kind of um, Tibetans are, you know, not perfect people either, because there is a habit in the West to portray Tibetans as a kind of um, something kind of magical, some kind of magic magical kind of kind of human being, which is not healthy actually, no. because they, because they are they are people too, and certainly you know they have problems, and in the past you know they had the same kind of uh, societal problems that all kingdoms had in the you know in the 19th century and and so on but i do but like you say um there is a ability in tibet to change and embrace even mm. though the history is you know thousands of years like for example how the dalai lama has embraced kind of western style uh democracy and so on and intends plans to bring that hopes to bring that and has brought that to the Tibetan government in, in exile. And now everything is kind of democratic and, and so on. So that seems kind of optimistic. Do you see that also in the, um, in the Tibetan uh, advocacy groups like yours, like the um, International Campaign for Tibet? Because there seem to be many, many organizations which are all campaigning for Tibetan rights mm -hmm. and Tibetan culture and so on. Do you see an ability for them to kind of combine together? and present a more singular front because i struggled with this when i when i when i wanted to interview a member of the tibetan mm -hmm. community it's like who do i go to yeah there was i had a list of 14 organizations and it's like <laughs> well who who am i going to speak to <laughs> yeah which is actually good you see because it shows there's a diversity in this in these societies yeah and if i would do a let's a, let's say a program uh, on estonia I also would struggle to to find a good counterpart who could tell me everything about Estonia. So, so of course, um, that's the same situation with the Tibetans. But I think uh, with Tibetans, our sort of advocacy work has sort of three pillars. The first one is definitely the Dalai Lama. Yeah, I think he became such a known figure, and it's under his sort of leadership, the Tibetans were able to talk about their own uh, history and this and that. So it helped a lot. I think he's a remarkable figure. Then the second point is uh, our culture is not a, a culture that is sort of shaped by ressentiments, you see. We are a culture that uh, we represent or try at least, you see, to, to be sort of uh, mindful and empathic about others. We don't succeed, of course, many, many instances, but, but that's the direction, yeah. And thirdly, we have, of course, we have a long past uh, history and everything, but at the same time, we also know quite clear which the what kind of future we want to have for our people but not only for us, but also for the world that surrounds us. Yeah. And I think this makes a bit also a difference uh, to other groups. We don't feel that being a victim is some sort of qualification. It's much more important to tell who you are, what you are looking for, what you are uh, trying to achieve. And what we are trying to achieve is 
the freedom on this Tibetan plateau. It's to build a society which is open, uh, a society that is well aware about its past, its culture, and try to find out of its culture an answer to the, the, the many questions of the future. And it should be sort of a inclusive thing. It should be democratic. It should be based on compassion. And I, if we see, if this is a package of values, I would say, which is quite contrary to what you see at the moment uh, in China. I don't say that the Chinese as a whole, you see, are not able for compassion or whatever. That's not the point. But if you look at the leadership, at the political system, you clearly see it's a materialistic society and it's going in a very different uh, direction. It's militaristic. It's sort of about impressing the world with the material wealth and so on. You know it better than me. So I think it's quite contrary. We are sort of, though we are small, we are sort of a quite powerful virus, I would say, to China's sort of future, yeah, because... I think it's we are a challenge. You're a constant reminder that there's another way of uh, life, a yeah, better way, maybe. Yeah. I see how your kind of your very existence is a challenge. It's a kind of counterpoint. It's it's the suggestion that there's an alter, a better alternative, and that that doesn't sit well with um, authoritarian regimes there because they are trying to establish a narrative where they are the only they are the only option. But yeah. you were presenting this alternative narrative, and that's, that's very challenging. One of the things that really inspired me, and when I when I lived in China, or not inspired me, but w- was kind of very interesting, was the I lived in the um, in the north in um, the Inner Mongolia or southern, ah, okay. southern Mongolia region, and I had Mongolian friends. And yeah. what that, what I discovered is that some of my Mongolian friends were not Mongolian; they were Tibetan, and they call themselves Mongolian. You know, because it's easy easier to get apartments or it's easier to get a bank, you know, loan or or, or something like this. And this was interesting to me that there there's this kind of a, a shared identity in a in opposition to the mm. kind of to the CCP and their mm. kind of narrative. It's not necessarily to like the Han Chinese people. It's but it is to the the Communist Party of China. Do you think that the Tibetan community has something to kind of teach? To the other oppressed minority groups in China, like for the Uyghurs and the now the Mongolians very much, and the now the Hong Kongers as well. Mm-hmm. You think the kind of um, the kind of legacy of campaigning and legacy of advocacy is a model that these people could actually actually use as well? Because I see, you know, the the oh, the Uyghurs are you know are more and more visible. But the, the Mongolians, not so much. And I feel like they need it too. I think it's really important to have this long-term vision and build up some sort of organizational base for this, for this constant kind of uh, 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 struggle, you see, against these many odds. Yeah? And I think that's something that the Tibetans achieved, you see. Uh, uh, in exile, we were able to have this organizational base for our future. We built schools, libraries, everything you see, institutions that can sustain and uh, are not sort of dependent on individual brilliance or whatever, sort of, it's a, sort of a, a, a collective effort which, which, which is expressed through this institution. I think that's very important. and. I know the Yugo people are trying something to do this, 
the Mongolians also tried to do something, but it's very difficult for them because they do not have this diaspora community as we do. Even if we are small, we are quite well organized. That's one point. The second thing is inside Tibet and inside Mongolia, I think that the situation is quite different. You see, the, the Tibetans, though there are many, many, many Chinese living now in, in, in Tibet, it's not sort of flooded with the Chinese immigrants. And according to my information, the situation in the in Mongolia uh, looks quite different. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, East Pakistan, the Yugo people, they suffer a lot. Uh, and uh, they also, yeah, uh, it's a long story there, but I think uh, they are, our situations are maybe a bit more compatible, the situation between the Yugo and the Tibetans, because we are still, you see, have actually quite uh, intact uh, communities uh, living uh, and alive. And so therefore, I think it's it's very difficult to say this is advice or every culture has, or every group has to really to, to, to understand what uh, its own strengths are and develop these strengths. At the same time, it's interesting to see, you may know, have no, take notice of this book in China, Wolf's Totem, Wolf's Totem, it's a, it's a very strange book about a, true, a Chinese young man who went to uh, 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 in Mongolia and then experienced this this huge nature and the people and this huge people with their stories on. And now, after many many years, this book was a huge success. There are millions of this book were sold in China. I think one of the best selling books. And it's actually a Mongolian experience. This man is talking about. It's not a Chinese experience, yeah. He's an observer of this whole scenery, yeah. But it's not actually him who's the core of this whole thing. I would say it's a Mongolian experience. So he's totally fascinated about this Mongolian culture and thinks this culture is actually much more powerful than the Chinese culture, yeah. Now, quite recently, Xi Jinping said to his people and his foreign diplomats, I want you to behave like wolves <laughs> and yeah. go and conquer the world. So it's very strange that the Chinese sort of uses the, this Mongolian idea to propagate Chinese superiority. I think it shows how this communist society or this leadership is totally disconnected from its own history and actually is looking for something which sort of gives them some reassurance as a culture, people, group, or whatever. It's sort, sort of totally artificial. And I would, to conclude, I would say Mongolians, as well as Tibetans or the Yugo, we don't have to see, invent these artificial narratives. We are living with them. So I think we are very quite, you see, we are not schizophrenic. We can be who we are and be uh, and try to be successful. Yeah, and I hope this this has some inner strength. Yeah, I see that too. I mean, it is a kind of it's kind of ironic that the Chinese government would use this kind of foreign narratives, but it's also a it's also typical of these kinds yeah. of re regimes that they monopolize kind yeah. of stories and narratives from other from other places and twist them to suit their own narrative, uh, to suit their own uh, agenda, as in the, you know, the Wolf Warrior case. Uh, but I, I really appreciate what you said about um, the kind of long-term 
solid foundation for Tibetans outside outside of Tibet, building up a long playing the long long term game. Because certainly that's what the Chinese Communist Party are doing. They're not playing, you know, for the next four four or five years. They're playing for the next thirty years. And I had a I have a very very um, a kind of specific question um, about the um, about the Dalai Lama, and um, what do you think that the from your perspective, what do you think the Chinese government are planning here no, with, with respect to him? Because no. it seems to me that they have this, and maybe I'm wrong, that they have a mm. long term plan to kind of split the Tibetan community and to have a kind of alternative uh, Tibetan community where where there would be two Dalai Lamas, basically, one inside China, who is appointed by the Chinese government. You know, the Panchen Lama suddenly reappears and, uh, you know, surprise, he's a communist member of the party. <laughs> and then there's obviously the uh, Tibetan government in exile would have their own uh, recognized Dalai Lama figure when the time comes that uh, he passes away. So what do you think the long-term plan is here for the Chinese government with regard to the Tibetan leadership? Yes, I, I think it's quite obvious, you see, how the Chinese government, the Chinese uh, authorities try to get hold, you see, control of, uh, of this uh, Tibetan system of, uh, of reincarnation. Yeah? And uh, there are these many, many other also uh, important people in Tibet, uh, spiritual leaders who are reborn and regarded by their communities as a, a natural kind of legitimate leaders of their uh, community, be it a region or monastic institution, whatever. And they, they have now established many new rules how these reincarnations should be found and how they should be approved. And they try to apply it currently on some lower, how to say, ranking spiritual leaders. And it does not work because the, 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 the acceptance by the public is missing. Yeah. That's, that's a huge problem. But still, they're trying hard. And uh, I think there's definitely a threat yeah, by, by, by this sort of very sort of systematic approach of depriving uh, monasteries and also the communities of fundings and everything you see and promoting this other group of people that's surely there on the other hand uh, there is a sort of uh, uh, understanding among Tibetans and I feel also maybe also on, uh, on the Chinese side yeah Chinese leadership side that the real sort of the authentic the leadership or succession is not organized by them. They know it actually. Even they try to manipulate, you see. So they know this is something that they can't control. That's sort of, you see, looking at it from this institutional side. Yeah. There's this way of finding the successors and they try to control this. Yeah. But there's another also story, you see. I think if we talk about this Lama, it's also about the sort of legacy. What kind of legacy? Do they leave for their for the for the world, yeah, for the people and so on? And in, in the case of uh, the Dalai Lama, I think it's quite clear what he stands for. It's open society, it's democracy, it's modernism, it's human rights, it's uh, it's the mix of 
Tibetan Buddhism and science. It's many things that sort of is reincarnated in all Tibetans and not only in one person who has will carry this name of Dalai Lama. So I think it's also a, a, a sort of a task, obligation of many Tibetans to look at this uh, legacy, you see, and understand this legacy, try to be creative, find new answers to this very many uh, difficult questions. Yeah. And I think if we have this spirit in mind, I think then we all cons can consider us a small Dalai Lama. Yeah? Then it becomes very difficult for the Chinese. Yeah? You could argue that the, yeah, the Dalai Lama's reincarnation can be, you know, the legacy of mm. uh, democracy and human rights, which he's embodied, mm. which makes, again, the, the Chinese anti-poverty narrative even more suspect because what where he came from and you know the 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 background of tibet you know 100 years ago is not really relevant to what the dalai lama represents in 2022 which mm -hmm. as you say is you know democracy and human rights and so on mm -hmm. so this kind of argument about civilizing tibet is moot and it just doesn't it just doesn't apply you know in this day it does seem to me that china is has a very strong foundation they've built a very strong defense in tibet on the tibetan territories it seems to me a very uh significant challenge mm -hmm. to the prospect of removing them and tibet becoming a an mm -hmm. autonomous country again so what is it that you envision as a path towards that or what is it that basically what is it that gives you hope and what is it that motivates you to feel optimistic about what what do you cling to when you when you need to feel optimistic about the tibetans future uh yes you're completely right if you look at the at the situation inside tibet the military built up the the the, 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 the huge amounts of, uh, of of infrastructure that they brought uh, to tibet uh, it's the the railway line it's yeah, the, the mine, mining and the dams the everything mining, yeah yeah and also uh, now at the moment, a huge problem is also so-called boarding schools, yeah, where they take uh, the children five days a week, put them in the boarding school, educate, indoctrinate them, and then they are allowed to go back to the families two days at the weekend sometimes, yeah. And it's the, it's basically the the the, the attempt to to infuse sort of a new sort of software into the Tibetan minds. Yeah, I think that's that's what has uh, been done, yeah. And there's a lot of police forces, public security is uh, very sort of uh, rigid in Tibet and so on. So there are many factors that actually should make us very concerned. And we, we are concerned. That's why International Campaign for Tibet is producing these many reports, you see, and see how the situation is and so on and also make recommendations to government, how they could use, speak up against these developments. This is true. But then uh, talking about the long-term uh, trends, you see, one could also say that this generation of Tibetan is the best educated Tibetan uh, generation. Uh, uh, this generation of Tibetans and the coming have a sense of being Tibetan, you see. This has been done through this modern social media uh, communication 
uh, opportunities. And this helped a lot to form a sense of being, yes, one Tibetan civilization, one culture, one people. And uh, I think there is, uh, these are positive factors. I would strongly sort of recommend, you see, to look into. I think these are exceptional, important uh, points. Yeah. Then um, we sort of tried to, or I at least tried to uh, sort of uh, encourage people to look at the situation with sort of, or address the situation with sort of a multi uh, strategy approaches. See, we have to uh, be prepared for this daily fight, yeah, <laughs> that we have in Tibet, but also understand that sudden developments, you see, sudden things can happen, you see. There could be some uh, 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 a situation like the Cultural Revolution that we had in 66 or 89 uh, with the Tiananmen thing. And I think if we have such a similar situation again in China, we should be prepared to seize this moment. Now, um, is there a chance for such a development? I can't tell you. Say, I'm, I'm not a China expert or I'm also not a fortune teller or nothing. I can't see in the future. But look at the COVID situation. You see, it, it was a very, very difficult situation for the Chinese government. Yeah, And it was only handled with the sort of lines of maximum force on the people, yeah. Then the situation in Hong Kong, is it solved? I think it's not really solved, is it? What they brought in was a lot of police forces and put the prison, but do the Hong Kongers, have they really changed the mind? Uh, have they really developed different views on these issues? I don't think so, yeah. So it's something which should make us very sort of cautious when predicting the future of China. I think there is a strength, China has this a lot of power, strength, but it's a system which does not allow too many mistakes there. At some point, Xi Jinping will be looked as a person who is not successful, who is not able to implement his policies in a manner uh, which is sort of compatible with the wishes of the majority of the Chinese people. And I think there are some indications, and I, as a Chinese, I would also say Xi Jinping is not a very uh, lucky leader. He, during his uh, time, there were so many incidents, you see, where he actually, the things were in the opposite, you see, direction uh, as he, um, compared to what he was actually telling us, yeah. Uh, be it economy, be it the COVID situation, be it the Hong Kong situation, look at the Taiwan situation there. Yeah. It's not going in the direction that he actually intended. I appreciate your optimism and I yeah, I recognize this too. I saw this also in, in, in China that Xi Jinping's resort to nationalism mm -hmm. seems to be a kind of cover for the fact that, frankly, it hasn't gone well for China, actually, in the in the last few years. There are ma major challenges, like also technologically, there are challenges, and this is why they have to resort to nationalism and um, technological monitoring of their own population and so on, because, frankly, this they're trying to manage a bad situation in China now. So, yeah, well, bad for them, but a possible opportunity in the future. <laughs> and I appreciate I appreciate the the emphasis on um, technology and um, using new 
platforms and new communication technologies to bind the Tibetan communities together who are separated around the world. You're thrown all across the world. But now there is this opportunity, be it through, you know, video uh, on YouTube or be it on social media or um, podcasts or any any other kind of technology. It seems to me that if Tibetans can stay ahead of the Chinese censorship on these topics, then there is a there is a great opportunity. Like, for, yeah. for, for example, um, you know, uh, on YouTube, if you are looking up uh, Tibetans, you can very easily find the Chinese propaganda videos. Yeah. You know, and the Chinese, um, the, the Western influencers who are basically paid to go to Lhasa and say that there's no problem here. Look, it's very beautiful yeah. and everything. You know, these kinds of um, poisonous videos. But you can also very easy. but before you find them, you do find the Tibetan diaspora. You do find the investigations. You do find the documentaries by high quality journalists from around the world who are spreading spreading um trying to spread awareness about this problem so there's an opportunity there as long as tibetans can like yourself you know keep keep up the good fight and bind together and stay on top of the technology i think it's very important what you mentioned now you see youtube for example if you look there you see you see these silly tibetan pop songs you see but if you listen carefully it's there's a message you see there's a sort of a hidden language in this in this with this horrible music you see and P- Tibetan are able to decode this, you see. So f- suddenly there is a sort of a second layer of language that we sort of use, you see, to communicate inside and outside Tibet. Sometimes it's about the, the beautiful language that we all share together. That's maybe such a song, you see. I think uh, such a song in Western context would be would be sort of senseless, you see. But in our context, it does mean something, you see. And there are many examples, you see, which goes into such So sometimes <laughs> it's, it's, it's strange from uh, to see developments or, you see, sort of, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, this, this, this resistance, you see, coming up, yeah, in very sort of strange shapes and forms, yeah. I agree. And I think this, this is why I think language is primary here. Yeah. You have to maintain the language always if you want to maintain the kind of the um, the sense of felt uh, identity of uh, shared community among, among a group, and it's the, that's why language is the first thing that the authorities authoritarian regimes will go for. Be it in Estonia with the Soviets, be it in China with the Tibetans yeah. or the Uyghurs or anywhere else, it's always a language. Number one, first we go for it, and it can be destroyed. It it is possible to destroy it, yeah. but it's also possible to bring it back. Yes, it's it very, is, very yeah. cool. You can kind of bring back that cultural memory yeah. and start practicing these things again and bring back this kind of community. Yes, I think this all these European experiences with languages is very encouraging. You see, it's possible to bring back the Celtic uh, languages, yeah, uh, the, the Basque language. Uh, many, there are many uh, Frisian language or whatever you see, there are many, many examples where. People thought it's gone, and suddenly, you see, again, books are made. Yeah. This is why in my this is why in my museum, um, we have all the we have banned books from around the world, but I also have another section which is just for languages. Uh-huh. So it's including a I have a very big book on Tibetan on Tibetan language. 
it's yeah. like a comprehensive from zero to 100 of how to speak Tibetan. It's very heavy, <laughs> as you can imagine. And I don't, I'm not a, I don't think I have the uh, intelligence to to do it. But I, I really understand, you know, that the languages are kind of primary in this, in this, um, in this fight to maintain our uh, separateness and not be, not be homogenized into one kind of autonomous uh, society where everybody is a clone of everybody yeah. else that is yeah. a real that is a real danger and that is a real method methodology which is being attempted on on the on that on that topic you know um what do, how, what is your perspective on um, tibetan writers and tibetan authors what is the state is there a, is there a tibetan literature that is kind of separate from other other literatures of the of the region or do you see it as part of a kind of um you know a wider uh kind of himalayan or buddhist or kind of north indian kind of tradition first of all censorship in tibet is very strong so there are good writers in tibet we know that there also you see people who publish publish a lot but at the moment it's not possible yeah, to publish and uh, therefore, what we see is now uh, that there are authors in Tibet, but there is no way of bringing these authors in conversation with, let's say, the exile community, or also uh, exile writers with the Tibetan audience inside Tibet. Of course, there's this is underground channels where books are sent and then people also make PDFs and send them to Tibet and this and that. But I think this sort of, you see, open uh, exchange on literature, uh, this is very, very, very limited, yeah. It's, then uh, we see something in, 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 the, uh, in the arts, which may be also compared with, the, uh, with literature, which is filmmaking. We have some great Tibetan filmmakers inside Tibet and also some few in uh, abroad. And uh, I think films are a language of its own. You see, it's a international, but also it has its regional flavors and everything. And it's a very powerful medium now became for Tibetans to express their stories. Yeah. So what you see there especially in filmmaking, you would see sort of small stories, family stories. You would see uh, people, um, individuals facing some hardship inside Tibet, which is set in the context of, of modernism against traditionalism, but it can be also understood like Tibetan versus Chinese culture or uh, the modern materialistic compared to this ancient society or whatever. But uh, we see different ways, expressions of Tibetanness, yeah, in these, in these different forms of art, yeah, be it painting, uh, filmmaking, literature. So, and at the same time, I think among artists, there's also clear understanding that they just so that they are connected, you see, with these other expressions, you see, of Tibetanism. And uh, there's no sort of truth in this or that, but it's something, if you look at everything, you see, you, you, you 
sort of then you understand that you're part of something yeah and i think this sense is quite strong yeah this tibetan sense of 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 expressing us in modern ways it's really nice to hear that the tibetan community was embracing things like uh, film filmmaking as a communication medium not only not only to complain about china and the you know and the persecutions and and so on but to kind of create and maintain that identity so so it's using it uh, in a kind of positive way as well thank you very much wang po it's been yeah. a fantastic conversation uh, it's a lot for me to digest and probably a lot for <laughs> a lot for a lot for our listeners as well but the work that you're doing is fantastic and um i hope that we can get together soon and have another conversation that would be very yes. nice in fact you see i plan to be in in the fall in in, in the baltic states yeah ah, yeah, yeah. Really. who knows we, maybe we could uh, have a meet yeah it would be nice yeah 100% that is definitely yeah. going to happen yeah, yeah. you can you can come to the museum <laughs> and okay, see, I will. see the Please. see the see the very heavy tibetan language books so then i will <laughs> i will definitely I will. oh fantastic yeah. okay yeah. well thank you very much and i'll speak to you soon thank you joe If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. You can find out more information about the Bandbooks Museum at bandbooksmuseum.com, where you can find links to our social media sites, including our Patreon page, where you can sign up to our monthly book club. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This is Joseph Dunnigan, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>